John chapter 10, I want to read for us verses 1 through 21. That'll give us context and where we're going today. Have you found it? Yes. Amen. You guys have. Those guys back there, nothing. So, John 10, 1 through 21. This is the word of Almighty God. Jesus speaking says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I'm the door to the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again, this charge I have received from my Father. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, He has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, These are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Pray with me, friends. Lord, I'm simply asking now that you will add your divine blessing to the reading, teaching, and receiving of your word. Be magnified in your church, I pray in Christ's holy name. Amen. You can be seated. Back in John chapter 9, Jesus healed a man who had been born blind. The religious leadership, those who should have been leading the people toward God and God's ways, refused to see the hand of God at work. They abused the people of God instead of being the leaders they were supposed to be. And as John 10 opens for us, we hear Jesus illustrate the situation regarding himself and the religious leaders and the people, referring to the concept of shepherds and sheepfolds and sheep. In verses 1 to 6, we did this two weeks ago, we take note that there are people who outside of any authority from God will try to influence the people of God in dangerous directions. And we take from that a warning to guard against false shepherds. Christians, if you may remember from a couple weeks ago, that taught us that we are to... Be cautious, cautious about which voices we allow to lead us. 
The religious leadership around Jesus assumed authority that they did not have the right to assume. They led people away from the word of God and into their own traditions. They rejected Jesus to try to hold to their own power. And wouldn't you agree that similar things happen today? Secular experts, false believers would lead you away from the word of God. They would call us to submit to authority, not from the Lord. But even closer to home inside the church, many voices undermine the health of the local church. Sometimes intentionally, sometimes not. Many voices out there mislead sheep in the process. And you may recall that when we talked about that, I challenged us to be careful even about good voices that are not your shepherds. And I would add, be careful putting yourself in a place where either, number one, you're powerfully influenced by someone who's not part of your local congregation, not part of your shepherds, but also be very careful thinking that you have something to say about shepherds and other churches. The internet is a dangerous place when it comes to how often we can be easily influenced or think we've got something to say about, well, sheepfolds that aren't ours. Does that make some level of sense? Be careful. Verses 7 to 10, Jesus began to explain the figure of speech. The people around him just didn't understand him. And the first thing Jesus did was to compare himself to the false teachers, to the dangerous robbers. Those guys want to steal and kill and destroy the people of God. But Jesus, like a good, faithful shepherd, said he came to preserve the sheep, to give them abundant, overflowing life. Jesus also shifted the metaphor a bit. Most of verses 1 to 10, you would think Jesus is the shepherd. But in verse 7, Jesus also points to himself as the gate, the doorway into the sheep pen. And from that, we understand that there's no way to be a sheep in God's sheepfold without going through Jesus. And there's no authority over the sheep, no genuine authority in the church of God that is not granted through Jesus Christ. Bottom line, if you want to be God's sheep, or if you want to be a leader of God's sheep, you must come to Jesus and do things in Jesus' way, under his authority, in accord with the word of Almighty God. And anybody who pretends to be a sheep in the flock of God, or anybody who claims the right to lead God's people, but who has not come through Jesus in accord with the word of God, is a false sheep or a false shepherd. All those notes of warning make sense. In John 9, this all makes sense, John 9 and 10, it makes sense in the light of the nastiness between the religious leaders and the man that Jesus healed. And we've seen something already of the ugliness of false shepherds. We've seen our need to avoid those false shepherds. We've seen our need to be found in the family of God by coming through Jesus alone. And now... After that little bit of review, we're going to move forward and we're going to find four points that you can write down, most of which will call you to know Jesus better and to rejoice in who Jesus is. And as always, we're going to hear the call to decide to believe in Jesus. So let's get ready and jump right in. Point number one, rejoice in Christ's love. Your first point this morning Rejoice in Christ's love. 
I want to read 11 to 15 for us here. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He was a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep. Sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. So, verse 7, Jesus back then referred to himself as the door to the sheep. But he's not going to limit himself to only one role in this figure of speech. This is not an allegory. This is not that every piece has only one meaning. Jesus is the door, the only way for the sheep to be in the fold of God. And Jesus is also the good shepherd. So don't try to draw this as a cartoon because it'll be weird looking. Now, this is the fourth time in the gospel according to John where Jesus has said to us, I am followed by a thing that he is. For you homeschoolers, this is I am followed by a predicate. Jesus said to us earlier in the book, I am the bread of life, chapter 6. He said, I am the light of the world, chapter 8. Here in chapter 10, Jesus has said, I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. Just so you know, three more times, there are seven I am sayings in John. He'll say he's something. He'll say that he is the resurrection and the life, chapter 11. He'll call himself the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14. And he will call himself the true vine in chapter 15. Seven I am sayings. And these help us to have a clear, beautiful picture of the person and the work of Jesus. Now, throughout the Bible, we've seen pictures of bad shepherds. And the bad shepherd pictures show us evil, uncaring leaders. Kings who abuse their authority and enrich themselves to the harm of their people are bad shepherds. Can you imagine living in a society where the political powers use their power to enrich themselves rather than for your good? Aren't you glad we don't live in a world like that? All right. Well, in this context here in John 10, the bad shepherds are the heartless Pharisees. These guys would have rather kept a man blind than to let Jesus heal him on a Sabbath day. The religious men of Jesus' day were beholden not to the word of God, but to their own additions to that word. And they didn't care enough for people to relax the restrictions even a little bit. We need to be reminded here of this, friends. I want you to pay attention to this, especially you stodgy reformed guys. God loves people. The Lord loves those he saves. God has big time compassion on his children. And we do not honor God if our attempt to be faithful to God leads us to cruelty toward others. Now, don't be confused. 
We do not compromise the word of God. We will, Christians, call sin what it is. And we will do that even when calling sin, sin is emotionally troubling for the sinner. But may we never lack love and compassion, even love and compassion for the guilty. That might be a place you want to challenge yourself, believer. Do you have love and compassion for the flawed and the failing? Jesus, unlike the bad shepherds, is a good shepherd. And the first way he shows us that he's good is that he, unlike the bad shepherds, is giving and loving toward his sheep. The Son of God is willing to lay down his life for his sheep. Like Jason read earlier, God demonstrates his love and that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Here in John 10, 12, and 14, Jesus contrasts himself with hired hands, the religious folks of his day. Those men would abandon the sheep if things got messy. You know, like a hireling who runs away if a wolf enters the sheep pen instead of risking himself to save the sheep. The Pharisees, they're not going to put themselves to any discomfort to show love and kindness to the people of God. But Jesus is the good shepherd. Verse 14, he lets us know he knows his own. His own know him. He said back in verses three to five, his sheep know his voice and follow him and they won't follow the voice of a stranger. There is a relationship between Jesus and his followers that is unique. In fact, verse 15 begins, Jesus says that this is a lot like how he knows his father and his father knows him. Now, now don't see knowledge, knowing the Father here as as just access to info. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus says, I know my Father in the sense of I have a relationship with my Father. And then in verse 15, Jesus points out he, unlike a fleeing hired hand, would lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus' relationship to the sheep, his commitment to the sheep, his love of the sheep is so great that he will willingly lay down his life for their good. Now let me ask, is that picture hard to grasp for you? It shouldn't be if you know the Bible. All of us have sinned against God and earned death. Do you guys agree that that's true? And for us to be rescued from the death that we have earned, somebody else has to take our place. Jesus, God the Son, willingly chose to come to earth, take on true humanity, and live out a perfect life just so he could die in our place as our substitute. The death of Jesus is the only thing that can cover our sin and pay the penalty that we owe for our rebellion. And that Jesus would lay down his life for our rescue is the greatest picture of love that any one of us could ever imagine. This is why I suggest that this section of verses should cause you and me to rejoice in Christ's love. 
Jesus is showing us here, he's not like the selfish, uncaring religious leadership of his day. He loves the people he came to save. He loves us to such an extent that he willingly went through the horror of death, even death on a cross, in order that we might become sons and daughters of God. Be cautioned, Christian, not to let this love slip from your mind. We can get caught up in all sorts of things, can't we? We get caught up in studies. We get caught up in doctrines. We get caught up in good and right distractions. But if we're going to love Jesus the way God commands us to love Jesus, we cannot let ourselves get far from remembering the depth and the beauty of the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Never let your study of other doctrines dim your vision of the love of Jesus for you. Don't let your grasp of the heavy truths of predestination, eschatology, ecclesiology, any otherology, Take your heart away from the beauty of the truth that if you know Jesus, Jesus loves you. Let that truth give you hope. Let it give you joy. Let it motivate you to love the Savior in return. What do you think, Reformed folks? Do we from time to time get so doctrinal that we forget the love of Jesus? Let's not do that. But with that said, how about some heavy doctrine? For whom did Christ die? For whom is Christ the shepherd? The illustration of the shepherd and his sheep makes it clear that not all sheep are his sheep. Jesus speaks of my sheep. If he says, these sheep are my sheep, what does it mean about those sheep? They're not my sheep. He says, I know my own and my own know me. Some, but not all, know him, hear his voice, follow him. Neither should we assume that he lays down his life for every single sheep that's out there. He came as the good shepherd to lay down his life for the sheep who are his sheep, the sheep promised to him by the Father from before time began. Let me give you a don't and a do here, at least for today. For this moment, don't let yourself hear that, read that, And then you start trying to figure out all the intricacies of what it means that Christ has a chosen people for whom he came to die. There's mystery here. We know for sure about this. We know Jesus did not come to die for sheep who did something to impress him. You know that, right? If Jesus died for you, it's not because you, he said, man, I'm looking down through the corridor of time and that Bill Arndt guy is a good dude. I think I'm going to die for Bill because he is a good guy who's going to believe in me. That's not how it worked. He didn't look down the corridor of time and say, 
Hey, Jonah Brown's all right, but I don't know. No. Jesus came not to die for sheep that impressed him. Jesus came to lay down his life for helpless sheep who would have been otherwise destroyed. He came to die for those upon whom his father set his grace in eternity past. And I promise you this, he didn't die for any sheep he's going to fail to save. Jesus isn't going, man, I really tried to get that sheep, but it was just too wiggly for me. Now, how God elected people to salvation is a mystery of his love bound up in his eternal wisdom and to his eternal glory. Maybe you're not sure about Jesus right now. Listen to me. Don't take your mind down a path of a thousand what ifs. That's the don't here. Don't take your mind to a place where you try to second guess the eternal plan of God. Don't let election and your inability to understand election serve as an excuse for you not to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Don't you dare think you can sit in judgment over the goodness of God based on your own understanding of goodness. Do let this doctrine give you hope and confidence in Jesus. Do you want Jesus? You interested in Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Have you trusted in Jesus? If you have, know that that is God's doing. God set his love on you before time began. God chose you and sent his son to accomplish your salvation and drew you to himself and applied your redemption and he will keep you forever. Give God the glory. Marvel at his mercy. Rejoice in Christ's love. Point number two. Rejoice in Christ's global mission. Rejoice in Christ's global mission. This is so cool. Verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. You don't you love Jesus? He shifts the figure of speech again. This is like shift number three. He was the gate. He was the good shepherd. Now he's got sheep from another sheepfold. And these sheep are clearly his sheep, but these sheep are not presently together with those sheep in the fold of the original illustration. And Jesus is going to go get those other sheep too. And then those sheep are like the sheep from the first fold are going to listen to him and they're going to follow him. And Jesus is going to form one single flock from the originally separate sheep folds. Sweet, huh? What in the world might Jesus be alluding to here? Jesus is giving us a hint about the overarching, glorious, eternal plan of God. It's a plan that the Jewish leaders in his day had overlooked and they had ignored. God's plan is that God would form for himself a people, one singular people out of all the nations and all the ethnicities on the earth. See, to the first century Jew, 
the concept of a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, being in the family of God was pretty tough to fathom. Maybe, maybe they would allow a convert to Judaism to be thought of as a child of God, but only as a second-class citizen. I mean, yeah, you can be in the family, but you're not one of us. We got the Jewish people of God and the, yeah, you can be the convert people of God, but you're not the same thing. Jesus is showing us here that God's going to bring all sorts of people from all sorts of nations into the one family of God and there will be only one family. And it's not going to be the Jewish followers of God and the other followers of God. It's going to be the singular people of God, the one people of God, a new nation of people from every nation. The religious leadership around Jesus, they failed to remember that God had always promised from the very beginning that Israel was an instrument through which God would bring his blessing to every nation. Genesis twenty two eighteen, God said to Abraham, in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Isaiah 42, 1 promises that the coming servant of God, the Messiah, will bring justice to the nations. But listen to this, Isaiah 25, because Isaiah speaks this so beautifully as he talks about the salvation of God for the nations. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. And see how familiar this sounds, even if you're not used to hearing it in Isaiah. Isaiah 25, 6 says, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, note the all peoples here, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. Sounds good so far. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all people, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, behold, this is our God, the nations say. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. Is that not beautiful? Paul writes about this glorious truth, pointing to the mystery of God present in the Old Testament, revealed in the New. Ephesians 3, verses, 3, or verses 4 through 6 read, When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So what's the thing present in shadow form in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament? The mystery is that the people of God are the combined family, one new people group, consisting of all people who are under the grace of God in Christ, regardless of nation or ethnicity. 
There is one family of God and there's no people or group inside that family of God that has a higher place than any other people group. Galatians 3, 26 to 29, Paul writes, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are heirs, or you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. God's eternal plan His forever plan has always been to make a new nation. Let's call that new nation the saved. Let's call that new nation the church. He's planned to make a new nation by bringing people to himself out of all nations. Israel as a nation was a tool, a key tool in this work. But once the work of Israel was done, once Christ had been born, once his work was completed, the way to become the people of God was no longer about into whose physical family one was born. Instead, as has always truly been the case, people become the people of God when they entrust themselves to God's care by believing God's promises. Jesus said he had other sheep from other folds to bring into the sheepfold called the people of God. See, the Old Testament true believers, they were already in God's sheepfold. God applied to them the work of Christ. God applied to them the grace of Christ, even though Christ had not yet completed the work. Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. But once the work of Christ was done, both Jews and Gentiles, people from any nation at all who would come to Jesus in faith, became sheep in that same one singular fold of God. So again I say, rejoice in Christ's global mission. You and I weren't born in Israel, did you notice? I don't suppose many, if any of us, are ethnically Jewish. Are any of you all ethnically Jewish? Not that I know of, right? We've had some before folks who came with that background, but for the most part, no. I mean, heck, first of all, how many of you don't have any idea what you are anyway? Because Merkin is not an ethnicity. But I have no idea what I am. Most of us are not ethnically Jewish. So I think you should be pretty glad that your skin color and your family tree has nothing at all to do with your salvation. Instead, rejoice that God, when God saves you, simply makes you a member of a new nation, his nation, the people of God, saved by grace through faith in Christ. Now, can I make a side application here? Never, not even for one moment, let yourself think that any ethnic people group is better than any other. Your skin color, your language your national background, none of it matters. Don't favor a person because of their nationality. Don't favor them. Don't put somebody down because of their ethnicity. Love your neighbor. And I will say this with absolute clarity 
hopefully with a biblical and not the world's definition these days. Love your neighbor by opposing racism in all of its forms. Rejoice in the global mission of Christ. And you cannot rejoice in the global mission of Christ if you hate somebody because of what color they are or what language they speak. Let's love the global mission of Christ. Third point. Rejoice in Christ's death and resurrection. Rejoice in Christ's death and resurrection. 17 and 18. For this reason the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who is Jesus and what did he do? That's giant questions, a pair of giant questions. And the Savior answers those questions for us right here as he wraps up his explanation of this big, long figure of speech about sheep and sheepies and sheepfolds and shepherds and gates and all the rest. Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the good shepherd. Here, bookending this pair of verses, we're reminded that Jesus is the Son of God. And between those reminders, we see the purposeful plan of Christ to lay down his life for his sheep but not to remain in the grave. Jesus says the Father loves him. Jesus says his charge to die and rise from the grave is his from the Father. Verse 15, Jesus says he knows his sheep. They know him just as his Father knows him and he knows the Father. Jesus is the Son of God and the beloved of God who truly knows God. Now, you need to understand, when I say Jesus is the Son of God, I'm saying He's the Son of God in a very glorious way. There are people out there that love to talk about all people as the children of God. And I suppose you can find a nugget of truth in that if what the person means when they say it is that all people are made by God in the image of God for the glory of God. But even if you take that as true, Jesus is Son of God in a very unique and special way. Because Jesus is of the very same substance of God, begotten of the Father. So what that means, friends, is Jesus is just as much God as God the Father is God. He is God in the flesh, truly God, truly man. That's who Jesus is. But what did Jesus do? He laid down his life and he took it up again. He doesn't tell us right here what that all means, though. If you look at the rest of Scripture, you can pretty well figure it out, right? Jesus laid down his life for the sheep. Jesus died to rescue God's sheep, God's elect, God's children. He did this on whose authority? On his own authority. Jesus did not die because somebody overpowered him or outsmarted him. Jesus died at his time for his purposes under his power and that authority is his from the father because he and the father are one now you look at the rest of the bible you can learn that jesus died as a sacrifice he served as a substitute who would atone for the sins of everybody who will come to him in faith in his death jesus took upon himself the curse that should have fallen on you and me for our rebellion against god in his death Jesus satisfies the wrath of God against us for failing to live up to God's glory. But Jesus also took his life up again. The grave could not hold the Savior. 
Jesus rose to life and he proved for all to see that the work that he did satisfied God. The debt for our sin is paid in full. Jesus Christ is victorious and everyone who trusts their soul to Jesus has the sure hope of eternal life. Though our bodies may die, we who know Jesus will immediately and forever be alive in the presence of God. And upon the return of Jesus, we who know Jesus will rise from the grave as Jesus arose and we will live with him forever in new, perfect, glorified resurrection bodies. And that's why we we rejoice in Christ's death and resurrection. It's our hope. I want to add a final word in case somebody hears this and you haven't yet come to Jesus. Point number four. Decide to follow Jesus. Or if it makes you feel better, anybody want to guess what this point could be? Believe in Jesus. (laughs) It's all over this book, isn't it? Verses 19 to 21. There was again a division among the Jews because of these words. Many of them said, he has a demon and is insane. Why listen to him? Others said, these are not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So this is the section drawing to a close. And there's a division among those who hear Jesus. There always is. Some of them assumed Jesus was demonically possessed or insane, a madman. Others saw the power of Jesus in the healing of the blind man and they they realized Jesus is good, not crazy, God in the flesh. I don't know, but uh, for me, these verses remind me of the famous words of C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. Anybody have that running through your head right now? Let me read it to you. Here's a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level of with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Listen to me. You, here today, you don't have a choice here. You are forced before God to say, what do you believe Jesus to be? Do you get that? You can't be neutral. You must say. Was Jesus crazy? Insane? Was Jesus evil? Or is Jesus God the Son? I think you know better than to think Jesus was a nut job, don't you? 
Nothing in the Bible, nothing in history would make anybody think Jesus was nuts. Doesn't work. If Jesus wasn't nuts, was he evil? Was he tricking you? Was he a liar? Was he actually like Satan himself? No, that doesn't make sense either, does it? But if he wasn't crazy and he wasn't evil, you've got one alternative and one alternative only, and that is that you would turn away from your sin and turn away from yourself and worship Jesus the Savior as God in the flesh. Decide to follow Jesus. Now, if you want help to know how to start following Jesus, come talk to me, one of the elders, Ben, Jason, Anthony. We would love to talk to you after service and help you understand how to follow Jesus. But I'll tell you this. You want to know how to follow Jesus? You can't do better than starting by just praying to God. Tell God that you are willing to entrust your very self to Jesus and Jesus' finished work. Ask God, because of Jesus, because of what he has done, please save my soul. And then if you do that, if God has changed you and drawn you to Jesus, that you would trust in Jesus, you can join us all in rejoicing in Christ's love, rejoicing in his global mission, rejoicing in his death and resurrection. That's our hope. Let's pray together. Lord God, even now, I pray that everyone who hears this message will genuinely, truly trust Jesus. I pray that you will bring us forgiveness of sin and life in the Savior. I pray that those who do know Jesus today would absolutely find great life, great joy, great hope in who he is and what he has done. Help us to find joy. Help us to remember your love. Help the love of Jesus flow out of us as people who preach truth, who call sin, sin, but who love you, who remember we're loved and show that compassion to others. Make us the sweetest, most gracious people in the world who wholeheartedly, firmly call people to turn from sin and trust in Jesus. Help us rejoice in your global plan in the resurrection of Jesus and in our eternal hope. We pray it in the Savior's holy name. Amen.